0: Good morning. morning. Quite a month we've had, huh? I'm thinking of news war in Ukraine, still raging Hamas, committing unspeakable acts of terror and cruelty against Jews and Israel. Israelites responding With attacks on Gaza, which, however necessary and just, are bound to create more death and destruction among the innocent. People sometimes say that the church should stay away from politics. Mostly that's true, mostly it's necessary, and mostly it's good. After all, The last thing we want or need when we come to church is to feel like the church is just an extension of our politics, especially not when we've watched what we've watched Congress go through last month, God forbid, but in a larger sense, our faith is about politics because politics is about living together in community. As Father Edward reminded us in his pastoral letter to us this week, the grip of sin and hatred that drive horrors in the world have been overcome by Jesus suffering and death and rising to life again. And so he said, we await the coming of Christ in glory, and the completion of God's purpose in the world. In the meantime, as Christians, we are called to be Christians, to resist evil, proclaim the good news of God in Christ, seek and serve Christ in all people, love the neighbor, as you want to be loved. Strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being. That is politics. It's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, by kingdom come. In fact, the Bible is the most political and worldly, of all sacred texts. There are no essays about God in the Bible, no speculation about the good or ultimate reality, as in Plato's dialogues. There's very little about life after death, as in the Tibetan Buddhist Book of the Dead. Shortly after 9-11, I decided to read the Quran to try to understand Islam. It only took me about 10 minutes for me to discover that there's no point. The Quran is mostly mystical poetry and its language is so symbolic that it depends for its meaning on the interpretation of scholars within particular religious communities such as Sunni or Shiite or Sufi. This is as it should be, I suppose, since Muslims believe that the Quran was dictated to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel. My point is that compared to much of what we consider spiritual or religious, the Bible seems obsessed with worldly matters with history, with politics. Think of the quotation from the prophet Micah at the entrance to our labyrinth. The full full verse reads, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Justice and kindness are the words of politics and relationship, hardly spiritual or mystical terms. Even the word walk in the Bible has practical ethical connotations. This also is as it should be because the Bible does not claim to have been dictated by an angel or to be the record of a conversation among friends speculating about God or mystical insights gleaned from moments of meditation. The Bible is the story of the people of God who were first wandering shepherds but who became slaves in Egypt, who cried out for deliverance from political oppression and were saved when God brought them to freedom through the Red Sea and commanded, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Indeed, the key to understanding the Bible has more to do with geography than it has to do with philosophy. If you look at a map of the Holy Land, you will see that Israel is basically a narrow rectangle between two river valleys. The east, to the east, Tigris and Euphrates, and to the west, the Nile of Egypt. The Arabian Desert lies to the south and the Mediterranean Sea to the north. If real estate is about location, 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 Israel is the worst piece of real estate in the world. Whoever lives in the fertile river valleys at either end of the rectangle is bound to become a great power. And because great powers tend to expand, Israel has been overrun throughout its history by Egypt from the Nile Valley, by Assyria, northern Iraq, and Babylon, southern Iraq, from the Tigris and Euphrates Valley, by the Philistines who crossed the Mediterranean and occupied the coast, establishing the settlements of Gaza, Ascalon, and Ashdod, and and giving the name Palestine to the land. By Alexander the Great, who also crossed the sea, set up a statue of Zeus in the Temple of Jerusalem and established Greek as the lingua franca of Hellenistic culture for 500 years. By the Romans, who established Roman law, introduced crucifixion and occupied the land until their empire collapsed. Then by Arabs who invaded the desert from the south in the seventh century of our era as Muslim armies conquered the region. Then by Crusaders during the Middle Ages and when geography no longer mattered, God gave oil to nearly everyone in the Middle East except Israel. What is amazing to me is not that the Bible is political. How could it not be? But that Israel came to believe that its God had not been defeated over and over again by the gods of the other nations, but that its God was the real God and there was no other. Israel came to believe in fact that its God was indeed not just its God, but was in fact the Lord of all nations, of history itself, and that the covenant demands of justice and kindness and humility were not required only of Israel but were themselves the supreme command applied to all nations in all times. That they were the key to understanding the rise and fall of nations and ultimately of the cosmos itself. So today, the lesson in the lesson from Isaiah, God addresses Cyrus, the king of Persia, Iran, as his anointed. The Hebrew word is Messiah. Shortly before Cyrus is about to conquer Babylon and allow the Israelites to return to Jerusalem from their Babylonian captivity, saying, for the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel, my chosen, so that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no other besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. And in the gospel today, we heard Jesus dismiss the question about paying tribute to Caesar with a simple give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. And we know what things are God's. We are reminded every time we walk the labyrinth as a meditation on the Christian life that as Christians we walk together, whether fearful or hopeful, trusting or confused, always trying to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. We are reminded each Sunday, as we are invited to offer our life and labor to the Lord, that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us. And we remember what things are God's when we renew our covenant with the Lord each stewardship season as we pledge our time and talent and treasure to God and renew our commitment to serve Christ by loving one another and serving the needs of others. So, in this season, if you are contemplating the commitment that you can make to the Lord and what you need to offer, do so prayerfully with the love of Christ for others as for yourself in mind. Just one thing, don't be like the man who, when somebody said how he decided to to offer the Lord, said, well, it's easy. I just reach in my pocket. Take out all my money and throw it up to God. Anything God wants, God keeps.